0: I spent uh, part of this week coming to grips with the fact that our universe is a weird place. (laughs) I I was listening to a podcast this week that was talking about quantum mechanics because every once in a while I need to let my inner nerd stretch his legs a little bit. And I'm going to tell you that at the quantum level, our universe is an absurd place. They were, they were talking about how the how the smallest particles in the universe, the, the fundamental building blocks on which everything else is constructed, how these things behave in ways that are completely inconsistent with everything that we expect about how particles ought to behave. And I'm going to describe this badly, but they were talking about how at times, quantum particles can behave like a, a mass, like a particle, but at other times they can behave like a wave. In other words, and, and the difference is when somebody is watching, it behaves like a particle, and when nobody's watching, it behaves like a wave, to the point where some scientists kick around the question of whether or not the moon exists if nobody's looking. It's just weird. Some uh, quantum particles can be in two different places at the same time. Some quantum particles can be moving in two different directions at the same time. Some quantum particles, if they get entangled with each other, once you separate them, in, if they're in relationship, once you separate them, even as far as 100,000 light years apart, What you do to one will instantaneously happen to the other. The effect will be faster than the speed of light. Stuff that nobody has any explanation for. The universe, at the core of the universe, the mechanics, the the gears that make the universe work are illogical and absurd. And it kind of reminded me of what it is that we're talking about this week. Because at the core of the Christian faith, the gears that make the Christian faith work are utterly absurd. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're, we're in this two-week series, talking last week about the meaning of the crucifixion. And this week, we want to talk about the meaning of the resurrection. And for me, just processing that idea immediately brings to mind the question of whether it's possible to speak meaningfully about the meaning of an absurd event like the resurrection. Because if you think about it, what is the resurrection proposing? That a human being like you and me was alive, and then they died, and then they were alive again, and now they're still alive. Not surprisingly, this has been a point at which The Christian faith has been criticized. The people push back and say the Christian faith makes no sense. Because, and there's really only one argument against the idea of resurrection. And that is this. Things like that don't happen. (laughs) We have hundreds of thousands of years of human history documenting a fairly universal death rate. The idea of resurrection is rare in human history to be sure. And so I felt like, as I was preparing for this morning, before we could even talk about the meaning of the resurrection, we had to spend some minutes talking about whether it's meaningful to believe in something like the resurrection. Now, like I said, there's only one objection to the resurrection, and that's, you know, things like this don't happen. And honestly, it doesn't matter whether you're a person of faith or not, this should be a troubling Something that the doubt side of you grapples with from time to time. Because it is absurd to think about. But there's, that objection is really argued out in, in two different ways. Because there's really two things in the biblical narrative that need to be true in order for something like the resurrection to be true. And that is, on the one hand, there has to be an empty tomb on Easter Sunday. And on the other hand, uh, the disciples have to see or witness or meet the resurrected Jesus. Those two things both have to be true in order to suppose that the resurrection of Jesus could be true. And so these are the two places where criticisms get levied. People will say, for example, about the empty tomb. There was no empty tomb. That Jesus died on the cross. His bones were, he was bundled up and he was put in a tomb and that body was still there on Sunday morning. And this is all hype and invention. And the the way that I suppose some people have responded to that is to say, then just when people started talking about resurrection, how come did nobody, did, how come nobody said, well, here, here's the body? Right? And someone had said, well, that's because, you know, uh, other people have said, well, there was an empty tomb, but it's not because Jesus was resurrected. It was for a different reason. It was because um, Jesus didn't die. He was given a drug on the cross, and he passed out, and the soldiers thought he was dead, and he got buried, but then he was revived, and he he walked out of the tomb alive. Which is to propose, rather implausibly, that these Roman soldiers, who literally executed thousands of people every year, uh, didn't know what a dead body looked like. Or Jesus' friends who bundled him up in order to bury him didn't recognize that he wasn't a corpse, which seems implausible. I can recognize a corpse when I walk into a hospital room, when somebody's alive or dead. You know, you can too. Other people have said, well, no, he, there was an empty tomb, but it was, it was because he was buried and um, then his body was moved by the disciples. Well, the body, if the disciples moved the body, then this whole thing is a hoax. And it's hard to imagine somebody giving their life up as a martyr for a hoax. So they'll say, well, the body was moved by somebody else. A grave robber or a, uh, the gardener moved the body. Which is actually, if you read the stories, was actually what one of the women thought, that the gardener had moved Jesus' body. It's a plausible explanation. There's no proof for it. But if the gardener moved the body, then why did the disciples talk about seeing uh, the resurrected Jesus? And people will say, well, they didn't see the resurrected Jesus. It's a matter of cognitive dissonance. They so badly wanted Jesus to be alive that their brains just kind of ignored evidence to the contrary, and they genuinely believed that he was alive. The, The problem with that is that nobody expected Jesus to be alive. No believed that the Messiah was supposed to die and be raised. In fact, when Jesus told them that repeatedly, they were always confused and it says over and over again, they didn't know what Jesus was talking about. So some people will say, well, they didn't see Jesus. You know, the woman who went to the tomb and met the guard, they met Jesus in the early morning light. Well, they just, it was somebody else and they just didn't recognize him. I get issues of mistaken identity. But they don't last forever. I remember when I was a little kid, about five years old, I was in the lobby of the church and I saw my cousin. So I I did what I'd seen my dad do before. I grabbed my Bible and I thumped him on the back of the head with it. The kid turned around, it wasn't my cousin. (laughs) I'll tell you, that was a matter of mistaken identity, but it didn't last forever. We sorted out pretty quickly that he uh, was not my cousin. We also sorted out that he didn't love getting his head thumped by a Bible. That was another thing that became clear in the moment. other people will say, well, it was like a vision, a, a dream or a hallucination of Jesus. They, they missed him so badly that they felt like he had visited him them in, in their dreams. Which I also get when my mom died in 2008, two different members, people connected to our family, said that my mom had visited them in their dream. Uh, neither one of them believed that my mom had been raised from the dead. And nobody believes that to this day. The, the objections of, to the stories don't seem that plausible, and when you look at the stories themselves, you begin to think these aren't the kinds of stories you would put forward if you were trying to convince people that Jesus had been raised from the dead, right? We have four versions of this story in the Bible, and all four are different in, at times, irreconcilable ways, um, clearly, these four people did not get their stories straight before they published them. And people will say, see, you know, contradictions. It proves that it's not true. Mm. If you got the witnesses of four, four people to witness a car accident and then tell you what happened, their stories wouldn't line up either. The details would be different, but the story would be the same. It's not surprising that that's how the Bible reports it. But it's the details that are odd. If you were trying to convince people that Jesus had been raised from the dead, you'd never tell the story about women first discovering that fact. That Jesus' resurrection depends entirely on the testimony of women. Um, Because women in the ancient world had no legal standing and their word wasn't trusted for anything. In fact, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, this is about the resurrection too, this whole chapter. Written 20 years before the gospel stories. This is how Paul says it. He says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That he appeared to Cephas, or to Peter, and then to the twelve. Paul says, Jesus was died, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared to his disciples, the men. Right, Peter and the other guys. He doesn't mention the women. Why? Because they they don't add credibility. They take away from it. And if you already had a tradition that said it was the men who saw Jesus raised, then why would you go back and write a story that inserted women on... Hey, let's shake up the credibility of this whole thing and let's add some women. Nobody would do that. Unless that's something like what had actually happened. The other thing that's weird about the story is the description of Jesus. Because if you were going to write, if you were going to say, you know, so-and-so died and then they were raised from the dead, you would probably describe the resurrected version of them pretty much like the pre-re- pre-death version, right? They died, they went to the grave, and then they came out pretty much the way they were when they were alive. But the Bible doesn't describe Jesus that way. He's a, a flesh-and-blood human being, but he has the ability to walk through walls and disappear and appear out of thin air. There's nothing like it in the ancient world, this description of Jesus. But he's not a ghost either because he can like eat fish and people can touch him and hang on to his garments and stuff. He's this bizarre uh, human but not can walk through walls like there's just, nobody would invent it that way is my point. C.S. Lewis once said the Christian faith is just absurd enough to be believable. And that was his whole point. He said, the, the way, nobody would invent a faith where, where the whole point is to sacrifice yourself and die so that other people can, can benefit. That, that's just, nobody would invent that. And this is a part of that. Nobody would tell these stories this way. For me, honestly, what I find compelling about the post-resurrection visions of Jesus is the way Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15. Um. Because he follows up the part that we read by saying this. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Um, there are times when I think I would just love to talk to somebody who was there. And we have these four accounts, but we don't really know that they were eyewitnesses. The, the accounts were written, the gospel was written Decades after Jesus died, we don't, we're not really sure who wrote them. They all have names. Those might be the right names, but they might not be. And even those names, two of them, Mark and Luke, never really professed to be eyewitnesses of Jesus. John and Matthew were, if that's who wrote the Gospels. But, um, but there are people who say, well, those are just propaganda stories. But then I look at what Paul says. Paul's talking to a live audience, writing to a live audience of people, and he says, if if you're skeptical about the resurrection, think about this. Jesus appeared to 500 people at the same time, men and women, which cannot be a mass hallucination. This is 500 people experienced the same thing at the same time. And he says most of them are still alive. In other words, you can go talk to them and ask them about their experience. And we, we can't go talk to eyewitnesses, but the fact that Paul would send people to go talk to flesh and blood eyewitnesses, that his confidence in their story was that high, says to me that Paul believed into his bones that something real had happened. The other interesting thing for me that I find very persuasive, there are two things you have to explain about the early church if the resurrection never happened. Number 1 you have to explain the church's theology. See our theology about what happens around death is part of the most conservative parts of our belief system. I was reading an article out of the Journal of Ritual Studies by a guy named Michael Romer who had done a, a research excuse me into Japanese ancestor worship. It's a Buddhist practice that you would after your parents or ancestors die that you would worship them at a shrine in your home. And he was interviewing people who practiced ancestor worship. And he asked them why they practice ancestor worship. And the interesting thing about their response was not one person said, because I'm a Buddhist. Japan is a very secularized country. And people don't generally subscribe to Buddhist teachings en masse anymore. And yet these rituals surrounding death, these beliefs about death, people still clung to those because they provided comfort. Your, your beliefs about death are really concerned. You don't change them very easily. And this is the thing that you have to explain about the early church. How did this community of Jews immediately abandon Jewish beliefs about the afterlife and adopt this belief about resurrection? Right, because the church's belief about resurrection was very different than the Jewish culture that they came out of, right? The, the Jews had a very broad diversity of beliefs about resurrection. Some believed in it, some didn't. They all had different ideas about it, what it would look like. The early church, which was all Jewish, immediately after the death of Jesus, they gravitate not to a broad diversity of views, but to a single, very specific view. Of resurrection. The, the Jewish beliefs about the resurrection body were vague and ambiguous. Some thought it would be like this, others thought it would be like that, often metaphorical. The early Christian church immediately developed a very specific belief about what the resurrection body would look like. Um, the, for the Jews, resurrection was a fringe conversation. It wasn't all that important. It was debated, but not a huge deal. in the early church Resurrection is the most single most important belief they have. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, the whole thing is false and it's a waste of time. There's a whole variety of ways in which all of a sudden these Jews abandon something they've always believed about death and life after death and they all ascribe not to a broad diversity of views but to this one single very specific view that though their Jewish background had taught them that all humanity would be raised at the end of human history, they believed that one human being had been raised in the middle of it, Jesus of Nazareth. And you'd have to be able to explain how this entire community comes to believe this one thing against their nature and background and so on. The other thing you have to explain is the nature of the community itself. Because the community of Christians around Jesus is immediately transformed after the resurrection. Right? The Gospels don't paint, paint a necessarily flattering picture of the disciples. They're excited about Jesus' teaching, but they often don't understand it. They ask him to explain it. They need follow-up. Um, they are often getting it wrong. He's teaching about humility, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Right? They're very zealous about Jesus. You know, they're protecting him. They're chopping people's ears off. And, and um, In one story, they're asking Jesus for permission to call fire down from heaven to punish people who rejected Jesus. Like, they're very zealous, and yet when the chips are down, they all flee like rats. They abandon ship. Um, They leave Jesus to die alone because they're afraid to suffer. Then Jesus dies, and all of a sudden, this ragtag group becomes this synergistic, energized group of Teachers and theologians who are articulating the teaching of Jesus for their generation. People for whom folks thought it was remarkable because they had no education and yet they were so sophisticated theologically. You have these people who are suddenly eager uh, To defend the faith in front of the very people who put Jesus to death. And they get whipped and beaten and even stoned to death. And they rejoice in the opportunity to suffer the same way that Jesus did. How do you explain this transformation in the community immediately following Jesus' death? Something had to have happened. And that something, I would contend, is resurrection. Now, obviously none of this is proof. At the end of the day, Christian faith is a leap of faith. But Bruxy Cavey preaches in Oakville and he has said, before you take that leap of faith, it makes sense to run a long ramp of reason. (laughs) And it seems to me that there are reasons to consider that maybe something like what the Bible describes in the resurrection of Jesus was actually the experience of that early church. Now, if it was, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that God has vindicated Jesus. That God has said that what Jesus did on the cross worked. Last week we said that the meaning of the resurrection was Jesus dying on the cross to absorb into himself the, the cost in order to pay the price to make right all that we have made wrong with the world so we could be forgiven for the way we've contributed to the brokenness in the world and to break the power of sin so that the power of God's unconditional love could reign in the world through Jesus and his community called the church when the church is following Jesus. Well, that's why Jesus died on the cross. But you have to understand, watching Jesus die on the cross, you wouldn't look at it and say, hey, he's defeating the power of sin right now. It's a very, everything about the event communicates the opposite. He's dying a shame-filled, humiliating death as a failed revolutionary at the hands of his enemies. Cursed by God, the Jews said. There's nothing about this that looks like he's doing what God wants him to do. Paul, the Apostle Paul would later write, That the death of Jesus on the cross was a scandal to the Jews. How dare you suggest that our Messiah was crucified at the hands of the Romans. The Messiah is supposed to defeat God's enemies. Not die at the hands of God's enemies. Cursed by God. He says it's nonsense to the Greeks. How stupid can you be worshipping a failed revolutionary. Who died on a cross. Like use your head. And yet the resurrection is God saying, no. What Jesus did on the cross was that he accomplished everything that I sent him into the world to do. In Proverbs chapter 10, it says this. The wages of the righteous is life, but the earnings of the wicked are sin and death. Uh, This is a core theological conviction of the Jewish scriptures. That those who live, align their lives according to God's will receive life from god in return and those who uh live apart from god's will fall into slavery to sin and experience death pain and death and tears and so on if you cut against the grain of how god says that life is to be lived there's a consequence to be paid for that the resurrection is the most extreme version of this reality being lived out. That Jesus had so aligned his life and his person and his character and his mission to who God wanted him to be and what God wanted him to do that God rewarded him with life even after he had already died. Not some metaphorical life in fullness and joy whatever. He had all of that. But God gave him life after his death. It was God's way of saying, this one has accomplished everything that I wanted him to accomplish. And if that's true, then the resurrection of Jesus means that one day God will raise those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, it says this, For since death came through a man... The resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. Here's what Paul is saying. Um, death is a universal reality in human history because all human beings sin, and, and death is the payment for sin. Jesus... By his life and death and then his resurrection. Jesus makes resurrection for those who have died in faith a reality. He will come first. 2,000 years ago on Easter Sunday, and all the rest will come when Jesus returns at the end of human history. God will raise those who have put their faith in Christ back to life and to inherit their own physical body again, but like Jesus' body, transformed and filled with the Spirit and um, become the kind of human existence that God always dreamed human existence could be. God will not only raise uh, those who have put their faith in Jesus' life. God is going to raise all of creation. He's going to recreate creation when Jesus returns at the end of human history. In Revelation 21, one of Jesus' followers, John, has a vision of what happens at the end of history. He says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea." I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. John says, at the end of human history, when Jesus returns, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. The word in Greek literally means a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, a recreated creation that will be creation the way God always wanted to create it. The world will be made into a brand new Place. Another metaphor the Bible uses is the metaphor of childbirth. That the old creation is in labor pains giving birth to the new creation. Which is fundamentally connected to the old and yet somehow fundamentally a brand new thing. Just like Jesus' resurrected body was fundamentally Jesus' body with the scars and the wounds. But it was yet fundamentally something brand new as well. God is going to recreate creation and he's going to root out of creation the evil and the destruction that sin has wreaked in the world it says in verse 3 and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying look God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God and he'll wipe every tear from their eyes and there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain For the old order of things has passed away. The the world will be recreated. And those of us who have been recreated, resurrected in our transformed, spirit-filled, renewed bodies will live in the recreated creation, in the presence of God who will live among us for all of eternity. And the world will be the way God always wanted the world to be. See, the Christian hope for life after death is not that your soul will go to heaven when you die. Now your soul, you know, that immaterial part of you does go to heaven when you die. Into the presence of God who keeps it in love. Until the last day when Jesus returns and God releases your soul to be reunited with your resurrected body transformed and spirit filled. To live in the recreated creation in the presence of God without pain or sin or evil or anything corrupting for all of eternity. That's what we're living towards because of the resurrection of Jesus. Now what does that mean for us? Because resurrection is not just a hope that we look forward to one day. Resurrection is something that God invites us to practice today. To live towards that day. To live towards our new identity. To live towards the new creation. He says, I want you to live out the resurrection life of Jesus in the life that you're living right now, in who you are becoming. In Romans 6, it says this We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried. With him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Here's what Paul is saying. When you put your faith in Jesus and represent that in the act of baptism, what you are doing is you are dying to the sin that used to rule your life. In effect, you're handing all of that sin over to Jesus and Jesus is carrying it to the cross and he's nailing it there where it dies. The sin part of you is dead. And you are raised back to life. We're going to celebrate this next weekend, by the way. It's going to be awesome. And you're raised back into this new life with Jesus Christ where you are transformed and spirit-filled and able to begin to become the person that you will be for all of eternity. The kind of person Jesus was. Broken over the brokenness of the world. Submissive to God and to your fellow human beings. Hungry. That the justice of God would be unleashed in the world. The kind of person who extends mercy to everyone, who is pure in heart, who is a peacemaker, who makes things that are broken whole again. Who's willing to suffer, to pay the price, to see God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And who knows that you need all of God in you in order to be able to do that. The kind of person who never lets anger degenerate into unforgiveness. The kind of person who never degrades another person by looking at them lustfully. The kind of person who is uh, truthful in all your dealings. Faithful in all your relationships. Patient with those who persecute you and insult you. The one who loves their enemies. The person who's generous instead of greedy. The person who is trusting of God instead of anxious. The person who's forgiving instead of judgmental. The person who's laid everything down before God in prayer. That's the person that we are becoming because of the resurrection of Jesus. How can we live in sin? Paul says. Put to death the misdeeds of your body and live in the new life that comes from Jesus. Live out your resurrection identity today by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. But not just your identity. Live towards the resurrection world that God is building. At the end of this chapter on resurrection, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Because of resurrection, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul says, because of resurrection, here's your mandate. Live to make the world the kind of world the world will be when God remakes the world. Begin to live towards that day now. Because resurrection guarantees that whatever God does through you for the kingdom of God. For recreating the world in the name of love. Whatever God does through you will somehow get enfolded into the recreation of creation. Somehow what we do here echoes into eternity. Every work of justice in which we participate for the sake of Jesus. Every work of beauty and of art that we create for and from our love for Jesus. Every bit of the community that we try and create with each other. Every bit of the good news that we share with somebody who's never heard. Every bit of the hospitality we extend to people who have been forgotten. Every bit of the care that we show towards creation somehow echoes into eternity and becomes a part of God's grand recreation project when resurrection gets unleashed on everything there is. This is what resurrection means. And no, I can't prove to you that it's true. We can run a ramp with some reasons, but at the end of the day, to confess resurrection is a leap of faith. But if it's true, think about the difference that it makes in you in who you are, in who Jesus says you are. You are brand new. Think about the difference that it makes in who you are becoming, in your character, in your being, in your life, in the way you are in the world. Think about what it means for where our world is going, for what God is doing in the name of love. Think about what that means for the role you have been invited to play in the reshaping of the world, the way God is doing, in the resurrection life that God is unleashing on our planet. It's a leap of faith, but man, what a difference it makes when you say, today I choose to believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father cross and the resurrection of Jesus are something that we could never do for ourselves we could never free ourselves from the power of sin we could never pay back everything that we've broken we could never forgive ourselves we could never be reconciled to you without the resurrection of Jesus we could never be made new transformed and filled with the Spirit to become a fundamentally different creature than we were before. Without the resurrection of Jesus, our world could never be made new. You've said in your scriptures that if anyone is in Christ, the world's a different place than it is for everybody else. Because we get to live within the, the realm, the aura of resurrection. Give us the faith to believe that it's true. Give us the hope to anticipate what you will do one day and give us the love to live from where we are now to where you are leading us through the power of resurrection because of your son, Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.